You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Hayes, and um, I'm a pastoral resident here at 3rd, and we are on week four of our sermon series called Longing for the True King on the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And these books relay a really key part of the history of Israel when they transition from this sort of smattering of local tribes to a unified kingdom. And we're going through this part of the Bible because, for one thing, it's it's a really important part of the history of Israel. but also because, as Corey said last week, this part, this history um, in the Bible is full of these uh, character studies. And what we find is that their story is our story. And we're going to see again this week that Saul is not so different from us. And so his story has something to say to us. Um, so let's pray before we uh, hear the word of the Lord. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit so that as the scriptures are read and your words proclaimed, we might hear with joy what, what you have to say to us today. Amen. Uh, so you can open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13, and our passage is going to be read by Peyton Matthews. A reading from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 2 through 14. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So I wonder if any of you guys have ever seen uh, YouTube videos about something called the marshmallow test. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, it used to be, I think originally it was some experiment done at Stanford, but now people just make really funny videos about it. Um, so this is the idea. The idea is that you put a kid in a room and on the table in front of them, you put a big fluffy marshmallow. And you tell the kid that they can eat the marshmallow now, or they can wait 15 minutes, and if they successfully wait the 15 minutes, then they'll get two marshmallows. So raise your hand if you think that you would be the kind of person who would wait the 15 minutes and eat the two marshmallows. Raise your hand if you think that you would just eat it right away. <laughs> so the funniest part about these videos is watching the kids try to wait 15 minutes um, because they just do the funniest things to help themselves wait. Sometimes they'll like sit on their hands so that they can't touch the marshmallow. All, every kid will inch slowly closer and closer to the marshmallow as the time goes on. Some of them will like pick up the marshmallow and like look at it and smell it. And some of them will even like lick it just to see how close they can get to eating it without actually eating it. It's really funny. And it makes sense, right? Because waiting for something that we really want is really hard. And our story today is about a time when Saul and his army had to wait for God to show up. As we've seen in this series so far, so far these people are not so different from us. Saul and his army find waiting really, really hard. And just like the Israelites, we live in a world in which we're waiting for God to fulfill some of his promises to us. So how do we respond when it seems like God is slow to keep his promises? When we find ourselves waiting in fear, we often respond by taking matters into our own hands, which is just what Saul did and like Adam did before him. But today we'll see that our impatience is matched by the patience of God, our true king who never fails to deliver us. So let's remember where we are in the story. Last week, we saw God relent to the wishes of the Israelites and he gave them a king like the other nations have. Um, he had Samuel crown Saul as king. And at the coronation itself back in chapter 10, Samuel reminded the people of Israel again about the kind of king that God desired for his people. So the true king of Israel would recognize God's ultimate sovereignty. You see, God had delivered the Israelites over and over and over again, and he would continue to do so through this king. This king would be an instrument of God's deliverance for his people but it wouldn't be on the king's own terms or in the king's own strength or the king's own way. It would be God's, God's way. So today our story starts when Jonathan, who's Saul's oldest son, starts a revolt against the Philistines. There was a Philistine governor who was stationed nearest the Israelites um, and he was charged with keeping tabs on the Israelites, keeping them under the Philistines' control and Jonathan assassinates him. Kids, this is kind of like walking up to the biggest bully on the playground and punching him in the face and then running away. Uh, so Saul knows that there's gonna be a big battle. A battle is coming his way. 
because Jonathan has poked the hornet's nest. And so Saul goes around Israelite, around Israel rallying the troops, um, gathering people to fight the Philistines, and they all, the army gathers together at Gilgal. Now, we haven't read through the whole narrative, but if we had, our ears would perk up when we heard that Saul went up to Gilgal to prepare for a battle. Because back in the beginning of chapter 10, when Samuel and Saul met by chance, remember the donkeys, um, Samuel tells Saul that God has chosen him to be king, and Samuel also gives him some prophetic instructions. And some of those instructions were that when Saul went up to Gilgal, you hear that part, to prepare for battle, he should wait seven days for Samuel to show up. And when Samuel showed up, he would, Samuel would offer the sacrifices and he would tell Saul what to do. Samuel would give Saul's, Saul God's battle plan so that Saul could be the instrument of God's deliverance of God's people. So Saul is standing up there on the mountainside uh, with his like 3,000 or so troops waiting for Samuel to show up. Um, and as he's waiting, slowly the Philistine army starts to appear. I kind of imagine, um, I, I really like this image here. Um, imagine that you're standing on, on a mountainside looking out over that opposite mountainside and slowly you see a couple of silhouettes of people pop up on that ridge across the way. And then slowly there are more and then there are more. And then you start to see some chariots and horses. And then you see the glint of some swords and spears. We find out later that the Israelites didn't have metal weapons, only the Philistines did. So the Israelites were fighting with bows and arrows and slingshots. And you realize they've got chariots, they've got swords, they've got spears. And the narrator says that there are so many Philistines that they're like the sand on the seashore. How many pieces of sand are on the seashore? Anybody know? He's trying to say that it was way too many to count. So look out across that ridge and you just see people as far as the eye can see. And Samuel's, I mean, Saul is looking around going, so uh, anybody seen Samuel? So kids, imagine that you're waiting on the sidelines for a soccer game and you're sitting there waiting for the other team to show up, and this person shows up um, wearing the other team's jersey, but they look like an adult, so you think, you know, that is, must be the coach. Um, and then more of them show up wearing the jersey, but they also look like adults, and all of a sudden you realize that's the team you're supposed to play, and they all look like they're 10 years older than you. What are you thinking? You're thinking, this game is not going to go very well. Right? So Saul and his army, the Israelite army, there was this real external threat, right? God had promised the Israelites over and over again that he would fight their battles for them, that he would show up and protect them. But they're in that awful moment of waiting for God to show up. I wonder if you've been there or if maybe you're there now. Uh, waiting for a diagnosis or a prognosis, waiting for an adult child to come back around, 
Maybe you're waiting to see if your marriage can withstand this most recent blow. What does it feel like when you are staring a massive threat in the face and you're waiting for God to come through? What does that feel like? So in today's narrative, we see three different ways that people respond when they are waiting in fear. We see people hiding, we see people retreating, and we see people rushing. Hiding, retreating, and rushing. So first we see that in their fear, some of the soldiers hide. So instead of preparing for battle, like they're supposed to be doing, there are some of these soldiers that take cover in some really funny places, in thickets, behind rocks, uh, under, uh, in cisterns, which are like big holes in the water where you can get, in the ground where you can get water. Um, and I think it's the, the narrator, the way he talks about this, um, it, it almost sounds funny, these places that they're hiding, kind of like, um, you know, a big fat bear trying to hide behind a skinny tree, right? Um, so I think that the narrator is trying to get us to see that, that these people are um, being cowardly in their hiding. And it's ironic because the hiding doesn't solve the problem, right? The Philistines are still there. The threat is still there. But these soldiers are moving towards inaction. They're paralyzed in their fear. And I have to admit to you guys that when I am confronted with uncertainty, which makes me afraid, I often freeze too. I get paralyzed. Like, I can't take any step forward unless I know that it's the right step. Um, and I wonder if you too find yourself moving towards inactivity or numbing out when you're confronted by fear. Like maybe you find yourself scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or the news, just trying to find anything to think about except what's right in front of you. So we see some of the soldiers hiding. And next we see other soldiers while they're waiting in fear retreating. These soldiers were so afraid of the Philistines that they retreated across the Jordan River into the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, if you remember your biblical history, then you might pick up on the significance here because God had delivered these people, the Israelites, through the wilderness, across the Jordan, and to the promised land. But now in their fear, they are returning back to the land where they were enslaved. They're in a sense giving up on the promises that God had given them, saying that they'd rather go at their own way than wait for God to show up when he said he would. And this isn't a new reality for the Israelites either because these Israelite soldiers, great, great, great grandparents, when they were in the wilderness, they said that they would rather go back to Egypt than follow God to the promised land. So even though they were dying in Egypt under the hard yoke of slavery, at least there they had some sense of control, like they understood what that pain felt like. But there in the wilderness, they were dependent on God every single day for their daily bread, and it felt worse to them than slavery. So I, just like an addict, you guys, sometimes we return to our places of slavery because they feel more secure to us than the liberation of depending on God for everything. So we see some soldiers are hiding, 
Some are retreating. And now we come to Saul, um, who is rushing. Saul had gathered his troops to confront the Philistines, and he started waiting the seven days. So far, so good. Um, And as he waited, the Philistine army got bigger and bigger, and his army got smaller and smaller. And at the end of the seven days, Samuel hadn't shown up. And so Saul is figuring, well, I guess I'm going it alone. He'd just have to come up with his own battle plan because Samuel was supposed to give him God's battle plan, but Samuel wasn't there. And so he figured the least he could do was cover his bases and ask God's protection over his own plan. So instead of waiting for God to come through, Samuel, Saul rushes ahead in disobedience and performs these sacrifices that he was not authorized to perform. And who shows up right when he's done? Samuel, of course. Kids, why is it that every time you do just one tiny thing you're not supposed to do, just the wrong person walks into the room? It happens every time. So, you know, I think sometimes when we read these stories about Saul and David, we see them as really cut and dry characters. Like Saul is this, you know, pure evil, completely unworthy king. But I have to tell you that I have struggled with this story this week uh, because I feel a good bit of sympathy for Saul. I mean, I wonder if you slow down and pay attention, you might see a little bit of yourself in him too because in a lot of ways, he was acting reasonably, right? He was supposed to wait the seven days, which he did, and Samuel wasn't there. And so he figured he might as well move forward in the best way that he could. His army was deserting. And so he made a decision, and he thought he was being reasonable. And, you know, I I see myself in him. Um, And so maybe like me, you're wondering, what's the big deal here? Why is Samuel riding Saul so hard? And is this fair for Samuel and for God to react this way? I think that these are some important questions. And as I was struggling with them this week, um, two things were helpful for me. First was to remember that we are reading cross-culturally. So if you've ever um, gotten any training or or done anything with cross-cultural communication, then you might have heard the phrase, be curious before you're critical. Um, Maybe if you're speaking to somebody for whom English is a second language or who's recently arrived in this country and they do something that seems kind of odd to you or maybe even offensive, what we learn in cross-cultural communication is to extend that person the benefit of the doubt, um, assuming that maybe there's something going on that we don't understand, that they're not just being rude, but maybe there's something that we don't understand. Be curious before you're critical. And I think that we can, um, even though there are scholars who have dedicated their lives to understanding ancient Near Eastern culture, there is still a lot that we don't understand about what's going on in the biblical story, about desert warfare and tribal kingdoms, and even about the Israelites' own worship practices. There's still a lot that we don't understand. We are reading cross-culturally. And so if there are some things that we as 21st century Americans don't understand, I think that's okay. I think that we can extend the benefit of the doubt and we can be curious before we're critical. Um, And second, the second thing that was helpful for me was to pay attention to the genre of literature that we are reading here. So a theologian named Tim Chester calls Old Testament history preached history. 
And I think that this is a really helpful term. Um, so we don't exactly know how this book came together, but in all likelihood, an editor compiled all of the most reliable reports um, from the history of Israel and put them together in a certain way. And, and the editor did not intend only to relay objective facts. This editor was trying to teach something with this story, just like a sermon, right? And in this narrative in particular, in this narrative that we read today, the editor has structured this story in a way that makes it really clear for us that Saul's impatience is a really big deal. And so I think that when we understand that we're reading cross-culturally and we see that the editor is intending for us to see that Saul's impatience is a really big deal here, then we can look at this story uh, in a little bit of a different way. And one big clue that the editor gives us is his use of the word foolish. So once Saul has given his excuses to Samuel, Samuel tells him, you have done a foolish thing. And Samuel's not just telling Saul that he's been stupid or he's made the wrong choice. He, the word fool here carries a particular meaning in Old Testament language. And we see the same meaning in Psalm 14.1. Anyone remember that one? It says, the fool says in his own heart, there is no God. And this doesn't mean uh, that this fool doesn't cognitively believe that there's a God. It doesn't mean that this fool necessarily is an atheist. Uh, what it means is that to be foolish in the Old Testament language is to live as though God does not matter. So it's about action, not necessarily about belief. Samuel is calling Saul a fool because Saul acted as if God would not act. When Saul rushed ahead, he acted as if God would not act. When Saul was chosen to be king a couple of chapters ago, um, he looked like the kings of other nations. He was tall and handsome and strong. And now in this narrative, we're seeing him act like the kings of other nations. He is acting as if he is responsible for the deliverance of his people. When God had told the Israelites over and over and over again that God would fight for them. And even though his action might seem trivial here, uh, the editor makes it clear to us that Saul's impatience, his impatient disobedience is the bellwether. It's showing us that Saul is not willing to be the kind of king that God desires. Saul is not the true king. But I wonder if you have been where Saul is. When we are waiting and God is tarrying, it is so tempting to rush ahead of him. But Saul knew, because he had seen it time and time again, that God will never not come through. God will never not come through. Maybe God was tarrying because he had some battle plan, some way to fight that Saul couldn't even imagine. And Saul had seen God do that over and over again in Egypt, in the wilderness, for Gideon, and countless other times. Saul knew that God could do it, but he act as, acted as if God would not. Now, I want you to hear me. Saul's desire for protection and the soldier's feeling of fear, that was not the problem. 
To feel fear is a natural expression of our humanity, right? I would even say that it's, it's part of our dignity as people who bear God's image. But each of these responses that we see in this story, hiding, re- retreating, and rushing in one way or another is acting as if God will not. God knows and understands our need for protection, for deliverance, for freedom. In fact, Jesus also felt fear. And God doesn't say, you don't need protection. He's not saying to Saul, you don't need help defending yourself against this massive army. But what God wants for us is for him to be our protector, rather than those little K kings like control and our time and our money and whatever else we decide that we need in order to be okay. God doesn't say you don't need protection, but the prophet Hosea says that God is like a mother hen who says, come here, find protection under my wings because he is the only one who can truly protect us. He's the only one who can truly deliver us. But this problem of taking our fear, our desire for deliverance and freedom to the wrong place, that is a really old problem. Saul was supposed to be the new Adam. That was the hope for kings of Israel, that they would be the new Adam, but he turns out to be just like the old Adam. And he has the same problem that each of us has. So if our impatient disobedience is this pervasive problem, then what's the cure? The only match for our impatient disobedience is the patience of God. Samuel says that God has chosen a king after God's own heart. And later that term will be used for David, who is admittedly more the kind of king that God desires, but David was also deeply flawed. And we see plenty of impatient disobedience in David's story as well. But God remained patient. And the true king finally did come from David's line. The one who, through his patient disobedience, would bring true deliverance and true freedom to God's people. And knowing the fullness of what lay ahead of him, knowing the fullness of what lay ahead of him, Jesus felt fear about his own death and he brought that fear before God, looking for God's protection. And ultimately, Jesus submitted to God and in obedience to the path that God had laid before him. And God's path to victory, God's battle plan, which was the cross, was not a battle plan that any person could or would have come up with on their own. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Christians who were confronting persecution and feeling fear. They were in that same place as Saul. They were waiting for God to to show up and come through for them. And the writer of this letter encourages these people with these words from Hebrews 5. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. 
Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In the face of fear, Jesus didn't hide or retreat from what made him afraid. He took his fear to God, the only one who could deliver him. In the face of fear, Jesus didn't use God as a means to an end or demand that God get on his side. He trusted that God already was on his side and therefore he could submit to him. In the face of fear, Jesus didn't grasp responsibility for his own deliverance. He submitted to the only one who could truly deliver him. And by his patient obedience, Jesus became the true king. By his incarnation, he found us. By his death, he has forgiven us. And by his resurrection, he's freed us. And so as we close, I wanna invite you to think about the different reactions that people had to these very real threats and to their fear in this story. Are you the kind of person who hides or moves towards inactivity when you're faced with fear? Are you the kind of person who go, retreats back to uh, old habits and old patterns, even if they enslave you? Are you the kind of person who rushes ahead and takes control, even if it's in disobedience to God? No matter what kind of person you are, you can look to Jesus as the one who saved you because he has made you secure. He has given you all that you need, the power to submit and to, uh, to wait for the one who truly loves you. Let's pray. Father God, we bring to you our fervent cries and our tears. We are confronting threats and we're waiting for you to show up on our behalf, God. Hide us in the protection of your wings and give us the strength uh, to wait for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.